The statistics are grim. One in five working moms say they've been passed over for an important assignment or for a promotion because they have children. And women who take even one year off to have kids come back to earn 40% less than their peers. Working moms outpace, outperform, and outwork their peers. So why don't companies make an effort to support working moms? And how can working moms advocate for themselves in the workplace and in their careers? Frankly, we're tired of asking for a seat at the table. It's time to make our own table, and we're going to talk about how. I'm Zabine Mirza, and this is Moms at Work. Friends and fans, welcome to Moms at Work. Today is a very, very exciting, very special episode. It is our first episode after launch. Jobs.mom has officially launched, and we are live Our website is live, the podcast has been live, and we are coming at you today um, from a place of extreme excitement that all of this hard work that you all have been following along with us on on this journey has come to fruition, Um, and we are um, humbled, and we are honored, and we are glad to be doing this very, very important work. Of course, my name is Zabine Mirza, and I'm your host, and today for our first post-launch episode, I have a guest here um, who I actually went to college with, and I haven't spoken to her in almost 12 years, and we connected a few weeks ago, and it was like no time has passed. She is extremely impressive in what she's doing, and and I could not do it justice, so I'll let her do it. But in a nutshell, she's a co-founder and CEO of Vital Statistics Consulting. Um, She's a doctor of public health. She's an incredibly accomplished scientist and academic. She's the host of the fabulous Unbiased Science podcast, and she has been fighting the good fight on the front lines in this COVID-19 pandemic with me today for you all, Jessica Steyer, my friend um, on Moms at Work. Jess, thanks for being here. Zabine, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I'm so proud of you. What you're doing is so incredible. And honestly, I have to take some notes. Um, I I don't think there's anyone better suited (laughs) to to run a podcast than you. Um, As you said, it's been 12 years and I feel like no time has passed. You're just so disarming and easy to talk to and relatable and just bravo. I'm so proud of you. And I'm I'm sure, I hope that you're so proud of yourself. This is really incredible stuff. Well, thank you so much. And it is, it is like no time has passed. And, and we'll talk about this a little later. You know, when you have good people and good friends and just when you're genuine and you're authentic, um, I think that goes a lot. Uh, I think that goes a long way in how people receive you and how you can also receive um, the support that, as a working mom, you certainly are going to need. Um, so, so just tell tell everyone a little bit about how fancy you are. Tell them about what you're doing. <laughs> tell them about the work you're doing. Tell them about the 27 degrees you have. Go ahead. Oh my gosh! You say I'm fancy. Meanwhile, I just clean the toilet bowl. <laughs> Because we have a stomach bug going around our household. Um, But thank you. Thank you for that introduction. So so yeah, my background's in public health. Um, I have a doctorate in public health with with an emphasis in health policy evaluation. And 
I've done a lot of different things. I did some consulting for local departments of health in New York City and on Long Island, New York. Um, I had a, I held a faculty position at Hofstra University on Long Island. Um, I actually built their master's curriculum from the ground up. Of course um, you and, did. Of oh, course you did. Yeah. <laughs> and was uh, teaching physician assistant students. So those are clinical students about things like epidemiology and biostatistics, which you know, it's it's tough to to convince clinical students that research matters and that you know health statistics that you know why 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 is that important if I'm studying to be a clinician? Right. Um, but that was really awesome, and in that role, I got a chance to to partner with lots of hospitals and healthcare organizations, uh, designing and executing uh, quality improvement projects and and clinical research projects. Uh, got just got some really great experience under my belt. Uh, I'm really passionate about uh, preventive health and population health, which we could certainly talk more about. I, I actually took a job. I moved down to Florida to be closer to my parents, my my father, um, who who recently passed away. He was very sick for many years um, with COPD and bladder cancer toward the end. And actually, he he's been my inspiration from the start uh, to get into this field, um, but. But I moved down to Florida from New York to be closer to my parents. And then I took a remote position at a health policy consulting firm uh, based just outside of DC. And that work was so incredible. I got to work on these state and federal health policy evaluations. I felt like I was doing really meaningful work. I was doing really meaningful work, um, doing a lot of number crunching. So quantitative and qualitative data analysis, basically evaluating these policies to see, okay, you know, did they successfully improve quality outcomes and clinical outcomes and that that sort of stuff. Um, but to be totally honest with you, the work culture just was not right for me. I am a total workhorse. I know you can agree. Um, I love, uh, not agree, relate, excuse me. Um, I love working, but family first always. And that balance just was not there in that job. So I decided to launch this public health consultancy, Vital Statistics Consulting, which I co-founded with uh, actually my former professor and mentor who sat on my dissertation committee, Dr. Bill Gallo, who's this brilliant health economist. So we've been doing this for the past few years. We're a certified woman-owned small business and very proud of it. Uh, we really pride ourselves on doing very meaningful work, and I know we're going to talk about how we've pivoted and addressed the pandemic, um, but we also really make sure to strike that balance with family life. Um, this is not a standard nine to five. You know, we understand that life happens. We're super flexible. All of our consultants have real lives. They're real people, um, but we get the job done. So that's what we're up to. And then the other thing is that we launched um, a wholly owned subsidiary of Vital Statistics, the Unbiased Science Podcast, which is my baby. It's something I do in my uh, non-existent spare time, but I'm really passionate about scientific communication. And it's all about translating scientific research for the layperson, which seems more important now, you know, more than ever. So yeah. That's what I'm up to. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, not not a lot from the sound of it that you're not, you're not doing a lot. Um, my next question was uh, if you were a unicorn in the field, and it's 
obvious that you are, you know? And you, it was so funny. You just mentioned you, you spent so much time convincing students that why should I care about research and what a validation you have right now in the state of things in the world, um, why research matters, why statistics matter, why data matters. Um, what an incredible unfortunate but incredible validation of the importance of epidemiology and research and statistical measurement um, and, and tracking uh, for public health. Um, so what is public health, Jess? So public health, it's, it's often defined as the science and art of preventing disease. So it's all about improving quality of life, prolonging life, um, and not just the quantity of life, but as I said, the quality. But there's so many different facets of public health. Um, it's a really broad field. So I'm in the realm of data science, and that's all about um, evaluating health policies and programs to improve outcomes. But others are really on the ground working on community health. Uh, there's environmental health, epidemiology, as you said, um, all related but distinct. But I always try to explain that public health is like being a doctor for the population. So medical doctors diagnose and treat at the individual level, and we do, do so at the population level. So yeah. I hope that yeah, I think that's I think that's super important. And I think especially now as we're living through a pandemic that we need public health experts more than ever. And, and I see you on the front lines and we'll talk about that that frontline battle that you're fighting as a data scientist. Um, but talk to me a little bit about the field itself. You're a woman, you're a younger woman, you are a mother. What is the demographics like and and what have been some of those issues, if there have been any for, for somebody um, like you? It's interesting. You refer to me as a unicorn in the field, and you're, I think that's very generous of you. But public health is amazing. You have some really progressive thinkers. There's lots of diversity in the field. I actually think it's a woman-dominated field. But where I feel like it's been difficult is actually on the business side of things. Um, you know, there are so many times we'll be on calls with clients or potential clients, um, you know, getting down to brass tacks and about to execute a contract. And they're, you know, I'll be on the phone with them and they'll say, okay, well, where's your partner? And, you know, I, I don't understand why does my partner, who happens to be a man, why does he have to be present? You know, yes, he's an older man. It seems hard for people to wrap their minds around the fact that I'm a young woman and I could be the CEO of the company. So that, that's been really frustrating. Yeah. And actually, we um, – so I mentioned that we're a certified woman-owned small business, but I don't know if you know how that process works. It's crazy. We have it at the federal level, but then we're also going after these state certifications. And we applied for one. I won't call out the state. But in one particular state, um, we have, we submitted an application, and they they came back to us and said, "We're denying your application because there's no way that Jessica, being this you know young young woman, could be superior, could hold a higher position than Bill Gallo, than my partner, who's this older man." There's and, no way that that's real. That that uh, really happened. Oh, Zabine, I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm going to send it to you. I will send you the denial. We fought it tooth and nail. We're, it's still a process, but so far we're, we're not succeeding. Um, and our whole argument is that 
our firm, the primary focus of our firm is policy evaluation. That's my my training. That's my expertise. I've worked in this field. This is what I've done my whole professional life. And my partner, as brilliant as he is, his expertise is, is in a, a, a different, related, but different field, health economics. So our firm is, it is, this is my expertise. I was brought on because you know, I have I have that skill set. I also am a project management professional, so I have the ability to manage the operations of the business. They could not. This was incomprehensible to them, so they denied us. And, and this is an outrage. I mean, I'm I'm sitting here completely dumbfounded that that mm-hmm. this has happened from a government entity. And I think, I think as much progress as we have made. The fact of the matter is these things still happen. They are still happening. And everybody that's listening, this has happened to Dr. Jessica Steyer, who is degreed upon degrees. Her degrees have degrees. And uh, she's 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 at the top of her field. And they said that there's no way that it's her and that she couldn't possibly be owning uh, and running this business. And it is an outrage. And it's, I think there's a lot of women that can relate to two things that you said. Number one, the disbelief that you are as a woman, the leader in a negotiation or in a contract or in a project or in a company or in a position where you have influence and wield power. There's, there's that disbelief and which by the way, Jess, it's not just coming from men that comes from other women as well. Oh, you're so right. Yes. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And it's coming from the government. So this is what we're talking about. This is so institutionalized. This is why feminism Mm -hmm. is important. This is why understanding systemic prejudice is important. And this is why at jobs.mom, this is why we do what we do. And and, in public health, systemic prejudice plays a major factor in access to healthcare, just as you know, and, and, and we'll talk about as well, why certain Portions of the population are struggling, um, especially in this crisis, um, over others. Um, Absolutely. So let's let's backpedal a little bit. Mm-hmm. What was your public health work like pre-COVID? I know right now it's all about COVID. I mean, this is a <laughs> once in a lifetime, you know, experience for somebody in your field, but what did you do Mm -hmm. before COVID? And were you doing any work that was actually focused on preventing pandemics or pandemic response? Zero, zero. I, you know, in in a classroom, I, I had taken coursework on emergency preparedness and epidemiology, but absolutely zero real life application, you know, of that skill set. Um, aside from playing the game, pandemic, you know, there was there was no actual real world experience in this field. Um, at, I was really focused more on chronic disease prevention. Again, as I said, work in tobacco control, uh, healthcare disparities, and I totally switched my focus to infectious disease prevention, which is it's it's an entirely different thing, uh, entirely different beast. And I had a chance to, to really flex my epidemiology muscle. Um, so pre-COVID, and at, honestly still, um, we were focused on evaluating these policies. So for example, we're, we're working with a Midwestern state with their uh, Department of Medicaid to evaluate this statewide comprehensive primary care program that they have rolled out. So, you know, really digging into the data and again, looking to see how has this policy, has it move the needle on quality outcomes and cost and all that good stuff. Now, in you know pandemic strikes, and actually this all started when uh, you know I don't know if if we follow each other on Instagram, but I was just informally on my Instagram, kind of 
t- reading the the evidence that was coming out, you know, it's coming out like a fire hose right now. All this information is coming out, and using my my research skill set to sort of critically appraise what was being disseminated to say, okay, yes, this is real. No, this is not real. You know, we're we're falling prey to these clickbait headlines that are being based on you know sample population of five people. There, there's nothing to that. You can't generalize. You know. And so I was jumping on my Instagram and just kind of, you know, filling people in on, on, you know, what I felt was the most credible information. And I actually reconnected with a, another friend from, from college, Zavine. I don't know if you know, and if you remember uh, Andrea Love, who went on to get her PhD in immunology and microbiology. So she had that like micro level experience. And then I have the population health macro experience. So we would jump on these IG lives and just kind of take this comprehensive approach to, to COVID and, and fill people in on like, you know, this is how it's transmitted. This is how we can prevent it. These are the masks we should be wearing. Um, this is what, you know, oh, we're, we, we keep hearing about the um, uh, case fatality rate. What the heck does that mean? What are the implications of that? So that became really popular and people were following my page that I'd never met. And I said, you know, I, I really would like to keep my, you know, I have two young children. I want to keep that part of my life private. So that that was sort of the impetus behind launching this public unbiased science page. And my firm really pivoted to, to work with healthcare systems. Uh, right now, we're working with the largest federally qualified health center in New York State. They gave us access to their data, and we're uh, creating a COVID dashboard for them. And something that I'm really passionate about is understanding disparities by sociodemographics in particular. So we're looking at differences in COVID rates uh, across different subpopulations. And next, we're going to look at um, vaccine uptake. You know, we just don't have enough data yet. Right. But really understanding why why certain people are more hesitant. And we know that that's, you know, more prevalent among persons of color. Right. And, and then taking that information and really then relaying that to people in the community, you know, faith-based leaders, community leaders, to try to... Um, inform those pockets of the population and and address that issue. And, you know, this is so important because you, you know, public health is so much more than just are the restaurants washing their lettuce so there's not like a salmonella outbreak, right? It's, It's so much more than that. And I'm listening to you speak and I am still just so upset about this state that I want to speak to the manager. Just tell me the state, Jess. I want to speak to the manager of this state. I'm going to write them a strongly worded email. I'm going to show up. To the manager of this state, whoever that is, I don't know who it is, and I am just going to find – what do you – okay, so before we talk about, you know, all of this, because so many threads in there, the COVID dashboard, following the, you know, the case rates, following the vaccine administration distribution, talking about the pockets of the population, I mean, this is extremely cerebral work. It's extremely specialized expert work, you need to have the degrees that you have to do this with any measure of impact or meaning. And yet people cannot comprehend that it's you doing it. What -hmm. do you do at the table when they say, we don't want to talk to you. We want to talk to Bill. We want to talk to somebody else. It can't be you. It's not you. We want to talk to somebody else. What do you do? How do you overcome that? 
That's a really good question. How do I overcome that? I mean, I I just kind of face it head on and I say, sure, Bill can join the call, but I'm the one who executes the contract. So, you know, if you'd like him to join the call, that's great. Um, I'm the majority owner of this company. I held the majority voting power. I'm the ultimate decision maker. Um, so, you know, in the beginning, I think I got really offended and and maybe I would, you know, back off and, and not confront it head on in the moment. And now I'm just so sick of it, to be honest with you. I'll just say it point blank and kind of, you know, if we're on a video conference, I'll see that they'll blush and, you know, they'll come around typically and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. I didn't understand. And yeah, that must be so confusing when I have CEO after my my name. What was so confusing about the three letters? Right. 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 But but I think that's the right thing to do. And this is something that we as women – need to be better about doing is not being afraid to correct and not being afraid to offend. Okay. And it's not that we offend them. We have this thing in our minds that, oh, we're going to lose the business or maybe they'll be offended. If I say we, we need to dispel that from our brains, right? We need to stop doing that. We need to say, I am the CEO. I am the project manager. I am the department leader. I am the team leader. I am the, it's me. It's not anybody else. So if you want to get this done, you're going to have to do it with me. And you can say it nicely, but it needs to be said. And this is something that I think as women, we need to be better about doing. We don't do this well. Well, you're so right. And I, you know, I would find myself in the beginning sort of apologizing, you know, oh, I'm sorry if I didn't make clear I'm, you know, I'm the decision maker. Uh-uh. You know, the onus is on you. You you see my title. You know, I, we, that's on you. You're, you're, um, I don't know, misinterpreting that. So that's not my bad. <laughs> that's right. yours. Yeah. So that's a really good point. And, and, yeah. it's, and it's their biases, right? And oftentimes it's not done out of malice. A, a lot right. of times they just are so completely unaware of their own biases, but it's on us, unfortunately, but it's on us. The burden is on us to call them out on it to bring it to their attention so that they don't do it to the next woman that they sit at the table with, you know? Couldn't agree more. And that's mm-hmm. super important. So let's come back to let's come back to this work that you're doing on COVID. Now, mm-hmm. public health, okay, public health is not just about the physical health. Mental health is a public health issue, right? And in this pandemic, um, mental health is is a crisis. It is, mm-hmm. it is a crisis. And, and we have some stats. So we have some stats that say something like 50%, at least 50% of women are experiencing at least mild anxiety and depression. 50% of women, right? There's the, the isolation, the childcare crisis driving women out of the workplace, um, the fear for their health, right? We are not meant to be living like this, cut off from social interaction, Talk to me about what are you seeing in terms of mental health, burnout, mental illness, especially in women, especially in mothers? It is I mean, exactly as you said, it, it's such a crisis. You know, as women, we we do it all, <laughs> right? You know, if something needs to get sacrificed, it, it tends to be ourselves. Um, yeah, I, I can't really speak to, um, to mental health in the, in the population. That's just not something that 
I'm specifically studying, although absolutely I, I read those statistics that you mentioned, and I know there's such an uptick in anxiety and depression and substance use and domestic violence, and it's it's just terrible. Um, I could tell you at our organization what I'm seeing. As I said, I work with so many incredible uh, super women who you know who juggle their families and work. Um, there's this spoken and sometimes unspoken understanding between us. I think we've all just kind of learned to extend each other empathy and understanding and grace. Um, it's incredible how, how quick we are on our feet and how efficiently we we work. It the work still gets done, even though, as you said, you know, we're worried about childcare. We don't have childcare. We are terrified for our health, our children's health, our husbands, our parents' health, whatever it is. Um, everything still gets done, even if it's super late at night or overnight or early mornings. But I worry about us. It's like something has to give. And as I said, it's it's usually that we sacrifice ourselves. Um, I think we're going to be feeling long-term impacts of this pandemic for years to come. Definitely. Um, Definitely. Yeah. I I don't know if I answered your question. but I mean, at at the time of this, you know, this podcast, um, the, the release date, is March 4th. So everyone that's listening, it's it's March 4th. And that's almost exactly a year, Jess, that it's going to be marking us in full lockdown from the pandemic. So I remember last March um, in 2020, it was, mm-hmm. I think it was March 9th or 11th or 9th, actually, when Governor Cuomo here in New York announced the state of emergency. And it was so naive of me. At that time, um, I was working and um, I was one of the casualties of the COVID um, economic um, shutdown. So I lost my job in COVID. But last March, I was um, five months pregnant, okay, um, in the pandemic. And I remember riding the train home. We had been hearing for several weeks about the situation in Europe and in, in China and Um, I started to freak out. I was riding the Metro North home um, out of the city from work. We were commuting. And I remember having a full-blown, like, silent panic attack in my head because the train was so packed. People were sniffling. And I became so paranoid. And it was so funny. I came home. I got home at around 7 o'clock. I sent out an email to my team. And I said, um, a state of emergency has been declared in in the state of New York, and we will be working from home until the end of March. <laughs> and, and I, March 2021. Um, it was the end of March. And I remember sending it and thinking, wow, that's like a really aggressive like timeline, like two and a half, three weeks. And, you know, I went back to the office once. Um, since the pandemic um, started, my, my office in the city, and it was to to clean up and clear out my desk because um, I, I had been laid off. Um, but it was like Pompeii. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was like everybody, like Vesuvius erupted and everybody just kind of was frozen. It was mm-hmm. like my Dunkin' Donuts coffee was there. Somebody's like jacket was on the back of their chair. I mean, it mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. bizarre, but it's it's a year now. One mm-hmm. year, Jess. I mean, it it's unfathomable, Oof. I think, that we would get here. But, you know, we're still here. We don't know how much longer, honestly. But one thing that we do know is that, as you mentioned, there are 
pockets of the population that are suffering and struggling more so than others, both in terms of exposure to COVID and um, succumbing to the disease and also the mental health element um, of it. Um, Why do you think that is? What accounts for those disparities um, and where do mothers fall in that? Well, you know, I, I think about myself. I, I I recognize I'm incredibly fortunate and privileged to have the autonomy to rearrange my schedule, to to pay for childcare. Um, I I just don't even know what to say about women or just anyone who who doesn't have that option. I, I don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I, I've I've been a vocal advocate for continued uh, state and federal support for people who are forced to be on unemployment. You know, if you have young children, schools are closed. Ha- how do you work? Right. <laughs> it's, it's just an impossibility. Right. And then you throw in, you know, the uh, you asked about mothers in particular, the logistics of e-learning on top of everything, virtual learning. Um, what do you do? Let's say if if you don't have access to internet or a computer. Um, it, it, there's no question that there are disparities. I, I don't think there, there are any right now. I think our immediate attention is to this acute, you know, infectious disease, the virus and, and, and stopping the spread of the virus. But there's no question there is another epidemic going on and that is the mental health. Um, there's a mental health crisis. There's, there's no easy answer to it. I, I just, all I can say is I am incredibly, uh, empathetic, and I just feel so deeply for those people who don't have those options. Um, I, I yeah. just you know, there's there's no easy answer, and 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 I feel like this this conversation with you is so timely, and also that we've launched jobs.mom exactly just about exactly one year on from from the start of this this global nightmare. Um, mm-hmm. You're absolutely right, and you know, in terms of schools. There is no excuse for an economy like ours to be shut down because schools are closed. There's Mm -hmm. no excuse. You know, our teachers, I don't know what they're getting paid, but I know it's not enough and they deserve $1 billion a week. At least I'm with you. I, I let's least. get a petition going. I am not kidding. Yeah, I have. I've always respected teachers. My mother's a teacher. I have such a newfound respect, adoration. My unbelievable, goodness. unbelievable. They take our kids, right? Mm-hmm. They don't listen mm-hmm. to us. That nope. you know, want a snack after they had their dinner. Like they take these heathens of our bodies, and they love them and teach them and care for them and. When they are unable to come to work because they are scared for their own lives, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We as a country attack them and mm-hmm. or don't provide them the PPE and or resources and or infrastructure so that they can safely teach our kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and our economy treats them like babysitters. They are not babysitters. They right. are underpaid Mm-hmm. You know, heavily underpaid, heavily underappreciated, right? Skilled workers that are mm-hmm. that have been tasked to teach our children how to become good, productive members of society. And this is what we've reduced them to. And for our economy to come to a halt, right? Because we essentially teach, treat them as childcare is inexcusable. It's unforgivable and it's embarrassing. 
I could not agree with you more. And just one other thing on that topic. Um, I'm very passionate about vaccines. I'm a huge advocate for, for vaccination now more than ever because that's our only safe path to uh, to getting out of this mess. Right. <laughs> um, and I would think that one of the very first groups that we should prioritize for vaccination would be teachers. Um, and the fact that so many states are overlooking them is, as you said, absolutely inexcusable. Absolutely. And you know, this is, this is another thing, you know, the the burden to fall on one group of the population to carry Mm -hmm. the country, the the world out of this pandemic, it's moms and zoom that's keeping this world spinning. Really? That's that's, that's it. And coffee. And coffee, moms, coffee and zoom. So, you know, (laughs) the moms, they're being driven out of the workforce. There's something like 900,000 moms that have been driven out of the workforce because of COVID, most of whom have um, cited childcare as the major issue. They can't manage it. And at jobs.mom, you know, this was one of the biggest reasons I was so adamant about making sure this, this was, I breathed life into this is because we need to start looking at the employers, these Fortune 500 companies, you know, businesses of all sizes, what are you doing to support the mothers in your workforce? Because unfortunately, the second you have a child, right, they look at you like you're not as committed, you're not as able, you're not as capable, which really it should be the opposite. You've grown a human and expelled it from your body and suddenly Mm -hmm. you're not capable, you know? So What we are doing at jobs.mom is really putting a spotlight on employers that are supporting working mothers and have infrastructure in place to allow them to work flexibly, remotely, um, but also pushing and advocating for the employers that don't to really get on board with that because this is not sustainable. It's not sustainable. Can I just tell you, I... I am in awe of you. I, I cannot tell you how important everything you're saying right now resonates so deeply. And it's actually so timely because just this morning I had an interview with someone, uh, you know, potential consultant to join our team, uh, an- another young female professional who just had a child, well, not just 10 months ago, had a baby. And she's reaching out because she said, you know, I don't have childcare in the middle of the pandemic. I, you know, there are no safe options. I, she had to quit her job because they wouldn't let her, it was some story, they wouldn't let her drop down to part-time. They'd have to let her go and then bring her, you know, uh, bring her back on as part-time. There was, it was all this whole complicated thing. There was no flexibility. And so we linked up because I, I do recognize the importance of, of, of what you're saying. And, and we do offer that flexibility and it is remote and it's not like we're micromanaging you and, and watching every minute that you work because we understand that things are going to crop up, especially when you're a mother. My goodness, you wear so many hats. Absolutely. Um, and, and she was so kind to me because I didn't have childcare today because of the stomach bug and my kids were home and I'm chasing them around the house while I'm talking to her about the work that we do. And we kept, we were apologizing to each other. And then at one point she, she turned to me and she said, why are you apologizing? And she was so right. You know, this is just our reality. And if we shouldn't be apologizing, we should be applauding ourselves for somehow juggling every single aspect of our lives, our children's lives, let's be honest, our husband's lives. Right. (laughs) You know, so. 
Anyway, yeah. just what you're doing is incredible. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. And it's it's such an important thing for me, you know, especially after this has been something that that has been a real passion uh, of mine for for years. You know, I have three kids. My my youngest is six months old. My eldest is five and a half. My middle just turned three. And I have gone through a string um, of awful scenarios as it pertains to employment over the course of the last seven years that I've been pregnant and having kids with employers that either fired me because they didn't want to have maternity leave or I ha- they didn't want to pay maternity leave for me or that I had to quit because I was extremely sick during my pregnancy and they didn't want to allow for flexible work. Or as most recently, um, I was let go in the middle of a pandemic one month after coming back from maternity leave, right? Unbelievable. Um, so, mm-hmm. so for me, this is super important because this economy right and there are there is a real number and i've talked about this on, on on other episodes there is a real economic loss when you don't allow mothers to work and that is 64.5 billion dollars in loss oh annually when mothers are not able to work so when women work when mothers work the economy does better if you care about nothing except that that should be extremely <laughs> eye-opening you know, that should be extremely eye-opening for, for all the employers, for everyone that's listening. And one thing I will add is I think what this pandemic has proved to everyone is that remote work is possible and successful. And furthermore, <laughs> yes, and furthermore, women, especially mothers, there was a statistic I think we shared um, just on social media earlier, 91% of working Americans believe that mothers have exceeded the necessary skills to be effective and efficient leaders because of everything that they deal with. But for those same mothers to be marginalized and not supported in the workplace is a crime. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. You're doing such important work. Yeah. Thank you, Jess. So the the last thing I want to talk about, because we just survived the era of fake news and um, we've just come out of um, a very, um, a very interesting and polarizing and eye-opening time uh, in American history. Um, But I see you on the front line every day weeding through misinformation about COVID, about face masks, about the pandemic, about the virus, about falsehoods. This has been one of the other great crises in this pandemic, right? False information and the role, of course, of social media in perpetuating that. Um, But the loss of truth, which is what science loves and is hinged on, right? Science is, is, is just the truth. It's just science. So what advice would you give to everybody that's listening on how should we be analyzing and disseminating and embracing information from sources? How should we be evaluating information for its credibility? Mm-hmm. That is the question of the hour. And you're absolutely right that social media has given people a real um false sense of confidence and a platform to disseminate information that they really don't have the authority to disseminate. 
Um, and for me, I see a real death of expertise. You know, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but I did study for for many years. Uh, you know, to to become an expert in this field, um, I've, I've worked in the field, and you know, it's so funny. Before this, no one had any clue what public health was, and and we just happened to to find ourselves in a modern day plague, and finally, there is some understanding of what public health and epidemiology are. But to answer your question. Please just trust the experts. Um, and I know, I guess it's it's hard to, to understand which sources are credible. Um, I, I always recommend that people do turn to the major academic hubs. You know, yes, the names that we all know, Johns Hopkins and Yale and Harvard, there is a reason. You know, they, they do have some of the, the best and most brilliant minds in, in this country. Um you know, there have been these social communication, uh, so, excuse me, scientific communication, um, I don't know what to call them, platforms that have kind of cropped up and, and our podcast is one of them. You know, that's the whole point of our podcast is sort of um, be that expert, be that expert authority for people and critically appraise all the information that's being hurled at us and then translate it in a way that makes sense. Um, my advice would be beware of clickbait headlines. You know, find your source. It doesn't have to be unbiased science. There are so many other credible ones out there. There's um, your local epidemiologist. There's COVID tracking project. Um, be very weary of YouTube videos <laughs> that are shared. Anything that sounds sensationalized probably is. Yeah. Um, also, be understanding of the scientific process. I think that people see it as um, weakness or flip-flopping. So for example, in the very beginning, we were recommending that people not wear masks. That was really because, A, we just didn't have enough data to fully understand how the virus was tra transmitted, and B, we were terrified of a mask shortage, and we had to make sure that our frontline clinicians had enough PPE. Right. Um, as we got more data and more information, we we changed our tune. It's not that what we said previously was, you know, wrong or you know, falsified in any way. It's that the information that we uh, were able to analyze, we got more information over time, right? So I, I guess be patient with the scientific process. And for people who are really suffering here, I would just remind them that this isn't forever. I, I know it feels like it's forever. It's been the longest year of, of, of my life. Um, but there is an end in sight. And in order to get through this, we have to trust the experts. And just to reiterate that right now, the experts, including myself, are all underscoring the importance of vaccination. Um, if you have any questions about vaccination, you should, you know, of course, speak to your own healthcare providers who know your your, your medical histories and, and and can speak to that specifically. Um, but also trust the scientists um, and these credible uh, scientific communication hubs. I hope I'm answering your question. You are. And, and I think that's so important because a lot of our, you know, a lot of our mental health is so directly correlated to social media and the information mm -hmm. that we're absorbing, right? I mean, it's a 24-7 news cycle that we just cannot get out of. And I would add to your expert advice that you just gave, my own like layman's advice is just close the computer and, you know, shut off your phone and get off social media, right? Just get off. 
Um, and um, it, it's it's hard because we're so enmeshed. Um, and but it it's affecting us. It is affecting us. Um, Jess, any last words to to everyone that's listening? Women, mothers, business owners, people that are just trying to survive. Um, from a public health expert, from a mom, um, from a woman, what would you tell everyone? You know, you're not alone. This year has been so disorienting. Um, it, it seems impossible to, to get through the day, at least for me, because it seems that every single second of every single day is spoken for. My husband makes fun of me because, you know, he's, he tells me I don't shower enough. <laughs> it's like, who has time to shower? Right. You know, before all this, before kids, before the pandemic, I would take these long, luxurious, you know, use scrubs and all these crazy right. things. And now I'm, I'm in and I'm out. Um, so, you know, I say, I try to tell people to do something just for yourself and you'll be mindful of self-care. That that could mean a lot of different things for for everyone. You know, for some people it might mean waking up at five a.m. to work out. You know, for me that would be setting myself up for failure because that's just not who I am. That's not sustainable. So for me, it's just setting aside some time to take ten minutes to get a walk, some fresh air in between meetings. Um, I'd also say, and I hope I'm not rambling on here, um, but it takes a village, and I know so many of us don't have that village automatically, you know, by blood. Maybe you don't have a big family or whatever it is. Um, grow your village, right? You, you Delegate some power. I know that's so hard, especially for mothers, because it seems like we do everything. And not only that, but we kind of do it best. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't do everything yourself and you shouldn't feel guilty um, to admit that. And if you are struggling, I, I really, I just, I want to emphasize this this is a really important topic that we're touching on mental health. I went through a period um actually before the pandemic, uh January of 2019. I I don't know if it was postpartum depression, but I was I was really in bad shape, struggled to get out of bed, um had some thoughts that are really painful to think about now. Um and you know, I I went and I got myself help. Uh for me, it meant getting on a certain prescription that has helped me. Um, I guess I just want to underscore that it's not permanent. You, you, you know, you there is a way out of this. The, the pandemic is going to end. Um, but if you are struggling in the short term, seek help. Um, and this is, it's not going to, to last forever. And the last thing I'll say, if, if, if I have another moment, um, is that, you know, I hope the silver lining of the pandemic is that we have this, newfound appreciation for the little things, you know, the trips unmasked to the coffee shop or cuddling up on the couch with friends, sharing a bottle of wine, watching trashy TV, whatever it might be. Um, so I'm hoping that this pandemic, the silver lining is that we have this new perspective on what actually matters and kind of don't sweat the small stuff. Um, not to be too Amen. <laughs> Amen. From your mouth to God's ears, we say. Yes. Jess, Jessica Steyer, Jess, thank you so much for being here today with me on Moms at Work. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. The honor, this has been such an honor to speak with you, Zabine. You are such a rock star. Thanks for everything you're doing. <laughs> Thank you. And that was Dr. Jessica Steyer. You heard it from the doctor. She said, wash your hands, wear your mask, get the vaccine, get off of social media, and ask for help if you need it. Um, and again, jobs.mom is officially up. 
live launch. Check us out at jobs.mom. And if you want to hear more from Dr. Jessica Steyer, you can visit the Unbiased Science podcast page and it's Unbiased Sci Pod. And I'll put a link to it in the episode description as well. Um, And as always, stay safe, stay sane, and we will see you next time. Follow us on social media. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out more episodes at jobs.mom 